Well, if you've got your Bibles, go ahead and open them to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. We'll be continuing in our series, Joy in the Midst of Darkness, throughout the entire book of Philippians. And today we'll be in verses 12 through 18. So to reiterate on what Jeremy talked about last week, we talked about the Christ hymn in verses 5 through 11 of Philippians chapter 2. And Jeremy said that we could take six to seven, maybe eight weeks to break down that passage of Scripture, and he is correct. The thing I told some of my students, some of my guys, the older guys, we're going through the book of 1 Timothy right now on Tuesdays, and I told them that Paul likes to use words. Paul knows words, and he likes to show that he knows words. And he is very wordy, but that is always a good thing because all of Paul's letters, everything that Paul writes is so rich and so deep, and there's so much material packed into so little sentences, so little verses, and it's, it's just so much rich truth. And today we're building off the Christ hymn that Jeremy talked about last week, and Paul points out some practical truths in practical Christianity that are important for us to be more like Christ and to grow in Christ-likeness. So Jeremy asked the question last week, what would Jesus do? The bracelet, WWJD, he took my bracelet and he didn't tell you that, but... He answered that question, what would Jesus do, by answering that with a question, what has Jesus done? And today, I want to, since Jeremy has answered that question for us, I want to ask a different question, is what should we do? So now that we know who Jesus is and what Jesus has done, what Jesus would do, we need to ask ourselves, what would we do? So if you have your Bibles, I want to go ahead and dive into the text this morning. That way I can let you out about five to ten seconds early. Verse 12, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but even more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to His good purpose. Do everything without grumbling and arguing, so that you may be blameless and pure, children of God who are faultless in a crooked and perverted generation, among whom you shine like stars in the world by holding firm to the word of life, Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor for nothing. But even if I am poured out as a drink offering on the sacrificial service of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. In the same way, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this day. Thank you for the warm weather and the sunshine that you've given us the last couple days, Lord. Thank you for this opportunity that we get to approach your throne and make the most of your name this morning, Lord. I pray that the Holy Spirit will captivate us and illuminate the Scripture in Philippians to us, Lord, so that we may know what you have to say to us, Lord, and be able to learn it in a way that we can proclaim it to others, Lord. I pray that you are glorified and exalted in this Scripture today, Lord. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. So right off the bat, Paul opens up with the word, therefore. So if you ever read your Bible and you see the word, therefore, you need to figure out what it's there for. So Paul is building upon the Christ hymn that he just described, that Jeremy walked us through last week. And Paul does three things to the Philippians before he gets into the practical truths. And it's called the three C's. The first thing he does is he commends the Philippians. He commends the Philippians. In verse 12, he says, Therefore, my dear friends, just as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but even more in my absence. He's telling the Philippians, you've done a great job so far. And I encourage you to keep going forward. And he also calls them my dear friends. My dear friends. Think about somebody you would call that your dear friend. I wouldn't call just anybody my dear friend. The word dear here is translated from the Greek word agapatos. The, Greek, the root word being agape. 
And most of you have heard the word agape. Agape is the Greek word for love between God and man, between Jesus and man. It is faultless. It is perfect. So this root word of agapatos that is translated to my dear friends is very weighty. It has a lot of substance to it. It means a lot. It's significant. It's a very significant and weighty adjective to describe his friends, the Philippians. So Paul deeply cares for and cares about the Philippians. And that's important to understand before we dive into the text any further. So it's abundantly evident that Paul really does care about this church, the Philippians, the church of Philippi. He's persevered with them. He's struggled with them. He's been on the mountaintop with them. He's been in the mountain valley with them. And that's very important to understand. He says in verse 12 that the church obeyed in Paul's presence and in his absence. He's commending them for their obedience and for their faithful service. They're doing well even in Paul's absence when he's not there to hover over them. If Jeremy's not there watching you, are you still being obedient to the Lord? Are you still being faithful? Paul is commending them. He does this in all of his letters. Paul always gives commands, and he also commends before he commands. In 1 Thessalonians 4.1, he says, Finally then, brothers, we ask and encourage you in the Lord Jesus, that as you have received from us how you must walk and please God, as you are doing, do so even more. So he always encourages and commends before he commands. So he encourages and commends the Philippians. He says, you are doing so well. You're being obedient when I'm not even there. Continue to do so. And now that he has commended them, he gives them a command. So we've seen Paul commend, and now we see Paul command. The latter part of verse 12 says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. So what does it mean to work out your own salvation? Do we work for our salvation, or do we work out our Salvation. So what does it mean to work out your salvation? It simply means growing in Christ's likeness. Striving to do that, the things that Paul has described Jesus as in the Christ hymn, that's what he means by working out your salvation. Growing in humility, being more selfless, being more others-focused, giving and tithing generously. That is how you work out your salvation. Jesus gives us the clear pattern for obedience in the Christ hymn. So last week, Jeremy talked about Christ's humility, his selflessness, the hymn of Christ. It's so beautiful, so rich, so full of truth. And let me ask you this. Does your life look like that? When you read Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-11, through 11, the Christ hymn, you see the beauty and the character of Christ. Does that remind you of yourself at all? Are you humble? Are you others focused? Are you selfless? Are you a sacrificial giver? If not, none of us are all of those things. So we struggle and are growing with our Christ-likeness. So think about this. Uh, has anybody heard of a cereal? Think about a cereal. Oh, this is random, but it don't make sense. Think about a cereal that is world-famous, and it's probably the worst-tasting cereal of all time. It's awful. It tastes like a napkin. But it's world-famous because of a promise that it makes to those who eat it. I'm talking about Wheaties. Has anybody heard of Wheaties before? Some of you guessed that, but Wheaties is disgusting. It's the worst cereal I've ever had. I'm not a big cereal eater, but Wheaties is disgusting. But Wheaties is not famous for its taste. It's famous for its promise. Think about some of the most famous athletes in all of the world right now. LeBron James, Steph Curry, Ronald Acuna, Mike Trout, Neymar. Those guys did not become famous world-class athletes by eating just Wheaties. If they did, I would have eaten a lot more Wheaties. They've trained almost their entire lives to become the world-class athletes that they are. They might have eaten Wheaties, and it might have helped a little bit, but Wheaties promises that if you eat these Wheaties, if you eat our cereal, you will become 
like these world-famous athletes, and that's a shortcut. And there are no shortcuts in becoming a world-class athlete, and there are no shortcuts in becoming more like Christ. A lot of times we think church attendance or Sunday school attendance or even reading our Bible, we count that as our Wheaties, and we say, if we just do this one thing right, we're good. We're going to make it. We're going to be more like Christ just by doing this one thing. But that's a shortcut, and shortcuts don't work in becoming a world-class athlete, and they definitely don't work in becoming more like Christ and growing in your Christ-likeness. So we know what it means to work out our salvation. We strive for humility. We strive to be selfless. We strive to be generous givers and tithers. And Paul says to work out your salvation in fear and in trembling. So is Paul saying that you should crouch down in the corner and be afraid of God? No. Jesus is our intercessor. We get to have access to the throne room. When he says work out your fear, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, he's saying you should be in awe and in wonder of God and the things that he does and his character. Solomon says in Proverbs 9.10 that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And being in awe of God and being in wonder of Him is the beginning of wisdom. So we've seen Paul commend, we've seen Paul command, and now we see Paul comfort. He says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But he says in verse 13, for it is God who is working in you both to will and to work according to His good purpose. So what keeps us from burning out and becoming more like Christ and being complacent in our faith. A lot of times we try to do things on our own. We try to be more humble on our own. We try to to be more sacrificial givers on our own, and we burn out really quick. But the thing to keep in mind is that we work out, but God works in us. Paul says that it is God who is working in us, so we work out and God works in. We don't have to do it by ourselves. If we had to do it by ourselves, we wouldn't make it. We don't make it by ourselves. Whenever you try to do things by yourself and not with God's help, and not with God's will, and not with God's direction. You don't make it, you burn out, and then you give up. But Paul says it's God who's working in you both to will and to work according to His good purpose. So you're not alone, Christian. Paul says you are not alone, you don't have to do this by yourself. It is God who is working in you. You work out your salvation by trying to be more like Christ, and God makes you more like Christ from the heart level. So we've seen Paul commend, we've seen him command, And we've seen him comfort the Philippians. He says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. So let's let's look at that more. See what Paul has to say about that in our next point, which is shine in the darkness. In verses 14 through 16, Paul tells us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And he answers this question, or tells us how to do this blatantly in verse 14. He says, do everything without grumbling or arguing. Do everything without grumbling or arguing. Think about the word everything. What does the word everything mean? I looked up the Greek word in which this word everything was translated from. You know what, it's tra- you know what the definition is? Everything. Surprise, surprise. Everything. It's not a trick question. It's not a, uh, it's, it's not a trick. It's everything. Every big thing, every minor thing, every little thing, every minute thing. Everything. Do everything without complaining and without arguing and without murmuring. So the command to avoid grumbling and arguing is very practical because perseverance in the Christian faith is difficult. It's very hard. The temptation to grumble, to complain, is always there. So I'll tell you a story. I actually have two stories. I only had one before this morning, but then something happened this morning, and now I have two. So I invited a couple guys over for a game night the other night, and they made me want to complain. I'll just say, within 45 seconds, two guys spilt soda on my floor, and it was really sticky. 
So within 90 seconds, I'd already wanted to complain twice. And then this morning, my fiance Brianna drove up here, a three-hour drive, just to hear me speak. She really loves me, can't you tell? But I left my spare key out on the light in front of my front door. I'm not going to put that there anymore since y'all know where it is. But she looked for it because I left it out there for her, and she did not find it. But she found a bird nest on top of the light fixture where that spare key was and no key. So a, I hope a little bird took my spare key away and not some stranger. But I, I wanted to complain. I was like, are you kidding me? Even in the silly stuff, it is so easy to complain. It's so easy to, to be upset about things. Even stuff like that, that's really not a big deal. The, the temptation to complain is always there. And even when, even when our leaders are leading, it's, it's easy to complain and argue about our leaders because leaders don't often live up to our expectations. We set these expectations for our pastor, our youth pastor, our music minister, our Sunday school teachers, and they don't live up to our expectations, and that makes it easier to complain. Even small little, little jokes, little making fun of people, like you say Jeremy preaches too long, or the youth pastor smells funny, Jeff gave me some wild hog sausage, made my stomach hurt, stuff like that. Even, that's just petty little jokes, but stuff like that can be detrimental to the body of Christ. Arguing and complaining and, and starting stuff like that is detri- detrimental to the body of Christ. Let's paint the picture this way. Has everybody seen the Rocky movies? I love the Rocky movies. The fifth Rocky movie is terrible. It's the only bad one. I'm not talking about Creed and Creed II. I'm talking about the original Rocky movies made in the 70s and 80s. So let's talk about Rocky for a second. Rocky is a terrible fighter, terrible boxer, has no skill, has no athleticism. He can't dodge a punch. He can't read. That has nothing to do with boxing, but I just need to point that out. He's terrible. He can't move. He's slow on his feet. He doesn't know how to give combination punches. He can't dodge punches. He can't do any of that stuff, but he's tough. He's tough as nails. And his opponent, Apollo Creed, is everything that Rocky is not. Apollo can move, he can, he can jive, he can float like a butterfly and sting like a bee, if I said that right. He's fast, he's quick, he's strong, he knows how to land combination punches, but he's not used to fighting somebody like Rocky because Rocky's so tough. Rocky can take the body shots, Rocky can take the shots. That's the only reason Rocky was even in the ring, because he was tough. And when Apollo got worn down because he wasn't used to his opponents lasting so long, Rocky started to land some body shots on him, started to land some shots to the head, started to wear him out. And when Apollo, his core was weak because he's not used to getting hit in the core so much, getting hit in the body. When he started getting hit in the body by Rocky, he started bringing his hands down and guarding his body, guarding his side, and he left his head wide open. And complaining and arguing within the church is just like body shots to a boxer. See, Fredonia and the church can be doing so many good things, can be doing evangelism, delivering food boxes to people who are shut-ins, having a rocking VBS, having so many kids in the youth ministry that you don't have enough seats, uh, having to renovate your sanctuary because you need new, new, uh, new buildings because you're growing and you're outgrowing your old buildings and doing all that good stuff. But when internal conflict and strife are happening within the body of the church, the church quits giving energy to those great things that it's doing and starts worrying about protecting itself from the internal arguing and murmuring that's going on within the church. Even the smallest little complaints and smallest little arguments can be detrimental to the body of Christ. Detrimental to the body of Christ. So why should we avoid grumbling and arguing? We've seen that it can be detrimental to the body of Christ, but Paul gives us three reasons in verses 15 and 16 why we should 
avoid arguing and complaining at all costs. The first one is shining as children of God. We are called to shine as children of God. Paul says that we must avoid grumbling and arguing at all costs, and it reminds me of what Jesus says in Matthew 5.13 in the Sermon on the Mount. He says, You are the salt of the earth, and if the salt should lose its taste, how can it be made salty? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So what makes salt distinct? It's saltiness. That's groundbreaking, isn't it? Salt is distinct because it is salty. Talking about the taste of salt. Not the way it looks, the way it tastes. Salt is only different from dirt because it tastes a lot better than dirt. Salt is distinct because it has a unique taste to it. And Jesus is saying that if salt loses its taste, it's no different than dirt. If Christians complain and argue amongst each other, we're no different than the people around us. We're no good. We don't look any different from the dark world around us. We don't shine like lights if we lose our distinctiveness. And our distinctiveness is not complaining, not arguing, and shining like a bright light. So if you're arguing and complaining with a fellow church member, whether it's a big controversy or a little controversy, you need to mend that immediately because it will be detrimental to the body of Christ. You will lose your witness to be able to share the gospel because you don't look any different than anybody else. If we lose our distinctiveness, we lose our witness. We don't look any different. The same is with Christians. If salt loses its taste... It's worthless. You throw it on the ground and it looks no different from dirt. And if Christians lose their distinctiveness, we lose our witness. We're no longer a radiant light to a dark world. The second reason we should avoid grumbling is we are called to hold firmly to the message of life. Hold firmly to the message of life. Complaining and arguing are the exact opposite of what the gospel teaches us. If we let God's word dwell within us and permeate our hearts, we'll have nothing but good things to say. A lot of times we find ourselves captivated and full of attitude and disgrace, but we need to be full of gratitude and grace. Replace your attitude with gratitude. Say that with me. Replace your attitude with gratitude. One more time. Replace your attitude. There you go. And replace your disgrace with grace. I believe a great challenge and almost a great motto or a great thing to go by for our church is we should be a proclaiming church and not a complaining church by C.J. Mahaney. We should be a proclaiming church and not a complaining church. If we complain here and then turn around and try to proclaim over here, we're just confusing. We don't make any sense. That's called being lukewarm. You're no good. You're just causing controversy. If you complain over here and then try to proclaim over here, you're giving a mixed message. You're not making any sense. You don't have any credibility. People will say, why do I have to listen to you? You're no different than these other people. You don't look any different You don't have any witness. You don't have any credibility. Why should I listen to you? We should strive to be a proclaiming church and not a complaining church. The last reason Paul gives us to avoid complaining is we are called to anticipate the day of Christ. We are called to anticipate the day of Christ. Paul's choice words in verse 16b, he says, Then I can boast in the day of Christ that I didn't run or labor or nothing. He uses the images, the imagery of running and laboring because ministry is difficult. Ministry is difficult. Life as a Christian is difficult. There feels like there's so many rules and regulations you have to follow. There's so many things that you can't do. 
You're being persecuted. We think we're persecuted, but we're not. People in other countries are being persecuted, executed, losing their heads. So why, why go through that? What makes it worth it? Why is it worth enduring such pain, such controversy, such hardships? Paul says that he endures it because of the day of Christ. Paul knows that the one whose opinion, whose judgment actually matters will be the one who judges him on the day of Christ, and that's what makes it worth it. That's why he labors, and that's why he runs. We can become so burnt out in ministry, in, in any type of ministry, whether it's staff ministry or volunteer ministry, whether you're a Sunday school teacher, a volunteer, you lead VBS, if you're a nursery worker, I'm sure, it can be hard. I'm sure you can get burnt out in the nursery. It's easy to get burnt out because we often have short-sighted goals. Those short-sighted goals may be high attendance, good fellowship, new attendees, new members. And those are all great things. But if our long-term goal is not being faithful to Jesus, then all those other goals do not matter. They're a waste of time. Church attendance, high church attendance, growth in quantity and quality are always good things unless your main goal is not just to be faithful to Jesus. If your main goal is not to be faithful to the Lord, be faithful to His commands... We're wasting our time. We can do so good in outreach.